Detective Trap contains descriptions of violence and sexual content and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. Detective Julissa Trapp pulled up to a well-maintained mobile home in Santa Ana. The man at the door had known they were coming, but didn't know why. He's still kind of, you know, kind of grimy from work, but he's very polite and at the same time concerned, right? Because there's two policemen at his door and we're homicide detectives and he's nervous. It was early spring of 2014, about two weeks into the investigation. You could tell he's a working man. You know, he's got calluses on his hands. He's just dirty like he's come from a hard day of work in construction. The man was a window installer at Hardy Windows in Anaheim, and he was still wearing his company shirt. Detective Julissa Trapp and her partner wanted to know why the man's fingerprint was at a murder scene. It had been lifted from a caulking tube, a tube of acrylic sealant, found on a conveyor belt near the body of a young woman at a trash sorting plant. Trapp showed him a photo of the tube. And he's just kind of looking at us like, yeah, I install windows. Like, that's a common caulking tube. Like, I use it all the time. And so I'm trying to ask him, you know, do you know where you discarded this particular tube? And he's looking at me like, woman, you're crazy. We know we go through this like crazy. But then he tells us like, well, I can tell you. I can tell you that we discard them at Hardy Windows because we never throw away trash at a customer's home. That is how, late on the 15th day of the investigation, Detective Trapp and her partner, Bruce Lynn, found their way to Hardy Windows in East Anaheim. They were trying to determine the route Jeray Estep's body had traveled to the trash plant. They were looking for the bin in which someone had dumped her. The trash company had given them long lists of pickup locations that fed the plant, but so far, the search had been fruitless. Julie went inside to go contact the manager inside. This is Bruce Lynn. I went outside and uh, went down that, that alley, and it, there was a dumpster there, a blue dumpster. And having been on the conveyor belt around... Jure's body for several hours, seeing all of the garbage, the particularity of the garbage. All I can tell you is this, is that uh, I saw the dumpster and I thought, hmm. Bruce and I look into this trash can and I, I still remember Bruce's face. And we're both staring at the same blue plastic tart material that we had seen wrapped around Jeray. And it almost gave me chills because at that moment, I knew I was at the right spot. Like, this is it. This is the trash can she was put in. Like, I, she came from this area. What does that really tell you? It, it tells you that's the dumpster that she was in. How did she get there? I have no idea how she got there. Where, from where did she start? Did she get murdered in Burbank and driven to Anaheim? Did she get m murdered in Baltimore and driven to Anaheim and stuck in a dumpster? No clue. No clue. It was an answer to one question, but there were still however many hundreds of questions yet to be answered. 
some of those questions might be answered if they could find surveillance cameras that had captured activity around the dumpsters. We ask them for video, and uh, they tell us, yeah, sure, no problem. What kind of loop is your video on? Oh, it, it erases every 14 days. I look at my watch. We're on day 15. And I just remember thinking, I'm a day too late. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, I'm Christopher Gofford. This is Detective Trap. Randy or not now, this game's mine to lose. So follow me lightly to the deep dark woods. Episode 3, Partners. The area in East Anaheim around the intersection of La Palma and Cosby is a series of industrial parks, woodworking shops, metalworking shops, auto body shops. At night, the businesses pull down the garage doors and the whole area empties of people. It's desolate feeling, a kind of no man's land. Lonely, dark. It's one of those where if you see someone walking at night, you know that they're up to no good. There's just no there's no reason or purpose for you to be out there um, unless you happen to be a business owner going there and you forgot something. It's definitely a place that you wouldn't want to be walking by yourself alone at night because there's nobody there. It was late on a Friday afternoon when detectives Julissa Trapp and Bruce Lynn got there, which meant the businesses would be closed till Monday and they risked losing surveillance video that automatically erased on a two-week loop. And I'm walking around this commercial area and I'm seeing cameras in different locations. And so I'm calling my partners and saying, hey, I know that I have been a pain in your rear end, but guess what? I need you guys to come out here. We need to start collecting video because I'm losing it. Every hour that goes by, I'm losing video. So they're like, okay, we'll, we'll be out there. There's something else about the area that's important to know. Because it's not close to any homes or parks or schools, it's a place sex offenders could go without violating a law prohibiting them from living near places children assembled. For densely populated cities like Anaheim, the lack of compliant housing sent many of them to seek out these hidden industrial pockets. At times, their beat-up station wagons and old RVs crowded the sidewalk outside the Coronado Street State Parole Office, where they checked in with their agents and had access to electrical outlets to charge up their ankle monitors, which took hours a day. Just a mile and a half away from there was Cosby and La Palma. The next day, we're passing out flyers, putting them on people's business doors, because a lot of the businesses were closed because it was the weekend. And uh, as I'm walking, I see a uh, camper parked behind not a body shop that's right next door to the window insulation place. I see a white male with a hat walking around in the back. And I thought, oh, that's odd. And as I'm passing out flyers, one of the uh, business owners comes to me and he says, hey, I really don't have anything to to really back this up. But he's like, you might want to look at the guy in that camper I know that he's been in trouble with the law, 
And he's always back here. He's, I think he works for that business. It was an old Lindy camper. And the man living in it was a bland-looking white guy of medium height with square glasses, the kind of person who would be easy to miss. He apparently worked for Boss Paint across a narrow alley from Hardy Windows. Trap made a note to check him out, but he was just one of many leads. At the moment, she was thinking of what one of her partners, Detective Mark Lillimon, had suggested a few days back. He wanted to check the GPS ankle bracelets of parolees on Beach Boulevard around the time Jeray Estep had disappeared there. Given the number of paroled sex offenders who congregated on that stretch of downmarket hotels and flop houses, it had seemed unrealistic. But now that they knew Jeray Estep had most likely been dumped behind Hardy Windows about 12 miles away, they had two important geographic points. They would look to see if anyone had been in both spots during that time. A monitoring system pinged the sex offenders at reliable one-minute intervals. And I'm like, you know what? It's going to work. Let's let's try. I mean, it's it's a it really was a kind of like a Hail Mary. Like, let's just try. Let's just check it off the list and see. We make contact with a sex crime detective that uh, had access to the program. And I give her the two coordinates. I said, hey, I need you to run your computer check for parolees that wear GPS monitors. She says, okay, no problem. And uh, I kind of go about my business. The next morning, I, I wake up and I'm like, I wonder what came off of that search. So I called this female detective and I said, hey, did you find anything? I, I never heard back from you last night. And uh, she's super excited on the phone. And she's like, yes, I couldn't wait to tell you. Um, and I'm like, tell me what? She's like, I got a hit. It turned out there were 10 known sex offenders near the intersection of Beach and Ball when Estep disappeared there. And there were 23 in the industrial area where her body was dumped. Only one person was at both spots. His name was Frank Cano. Frank Cano was 27, 5 foot 2. In his mugshot, he glared coldly, his expression nearly a snarl. But in other photos, he looked almost boyish. He was a state parolee who had served time for molesting a niece and now lived in a Toyota van near the window shop. It was not the suspicious-seeming white man Trapp had seen who lived in the camper. Kana was Latino, much smaller and much younger. And she's like, he hits on Beach Boulevard when she goes missing, and he's in the area where she was discarded. And some colorful words came out of my mouth. <laughs> and I said, I need you to come to the homicide office like right now. Grab your computer and meet us there. Trapp thought immediately of the three women who had disappeared from the streets of nearby Santa Ana starting the previous fall. She called the Santa Ana detective who was working those cases. And I said, hey, you're not going to believe this. And he's like, what? I'm like, remember that crazy idea about parolees and GPS monitors? And he's, he's like, yeah. I'm like, we got a hit. You need to bring me your girl's cell phone records so that we can chart them and see where they went missing and see if this guy was there. And he's like, okay, I'll, you know, we'll be right down. And so then with the help of Bruce Lynn and this female detective, we, we sat here and, uh, mapped each girl's last call, find out where they had gone missing from, and then compared it to uh, 
the GPS records for this parolee, Frank. They were gathered at Detective Bruce Lynn's cubicle, diagonal to traps. Lynn had a map of Santa Ana up on his computer screen and was putting dots on the screen to indicate the victim's last known whereabouts. Bruce is like, put in the location. He would basically give her like an intersection and then she would search that intersection and if they would hit within a certain mile radius, she would let us know. We didn't realize how close it was going to be. Kiana Jackson, Harbor Boulevard and McFadden Avenue, 3.09 p.m., October 6th, 2013. He's there. Josephine Vargas, 1st Street and Tustin Avenue, 7.10 p.m., October 24th. He's there. Martha Anaya, 1st Street and Grand Avenue, 6.26 p.m., November 12th. Martha, he's there. Every time she would say that, it was just like chills. Like, okay. And I think the Santa Ana detectives were just as stunned as I was. And so now we know that he's present at each of the locations where these girls went missing. That's not a coincidence. That's a suspect. He's the suspect. And one by one, he comes up at the last time that these girls had gone missing. It was unbelievable. I, I could not wrap my brain around it at the time. Like, I went from... I finally know where Jeray ended up to, oh my goodness, I'm working a serial murder. The sex crimes detective who was responsible for registering sex offenders in Anaheim said that Frank Kana was known to spend a lot of time in the company of another man. And this female detective goes, hey, by the way, he has a friend that he's always with. So she tells us the name. I pull up the friend. The friend was named Stephen Gordon. He was 45 years old, another sex offender with an ankle monitor. He worked as an auto detailer at Boss Paint next to Hardy Windows. The businesses had adjacent trash cans. Trapp pulled up his photo. She recognized him immediately. That's the guy that I saw. (laughs) I'm like, that is the same guy that I saw by the Lindsay Camper. Okay. We find out he also has a GPS monitor on him. Great. Let's run him. Gordon's GPS coordinates match the last known whereabouts of two of the missing women, Kiana Jackson and Josephine Vargas. When the women disappeared, his ankle monitor had been moving parallel with Frank Cano's. And their tracks are so similar that it's very apparent they're together and most likely in the same car because they're just that similar. So now I'm thinking, so he does two murders with Frank, but then decides no on Martha and no on Jure. It didn't make sense to me. So sure enough, I ended up uh, doing some homework on it, and I ended up finding out that uh, Stephen used to be on parole and had a state ankle monitor that he was wearing when Kiana and Josephine went missing. But his ankle monitor was removed. His parole was terminated. And he actually gets the ankle monitor taken off the day before Martha went missing. A few days after her disappearance, however, federal probation authorities put him in an ankle monitor. So now I have to contact the federal probation department. That was a little trickier and not as easy as dealing with the state. And uh, But ultimately, I'm able to get cooperation from the federal probation department that tells me, yes. 
he was on Beach Boulevard when Joy went missing. And it becomes very apparent to me that these two individuals are working together. What was your reaction? <sighs> what, what, what are the exact words that she used? Holy fuck, I can't believe we're working two serial killers. Was the words. I, I was shocked. Two, two individuals wearing GPS monitors killed four women? Like, it, like, this, I, I couldn't wrap my brain about it. Who kills somebody wearing a state monitor around their ankle? And then you immediately start thinking, well, what if there's more? These are just the ones we know about. And of course, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my brain about how we're going to continue the investigation from this point. What are we going to do? Do we have enough evidence to pick him up right now? If anything, it was, it, it was the sense of urgency because they've killed four just that I know about. Are they going to do it again? It was now April 2nd, 2014, the 20th day of the investigation. Trapp put round-the-clock surveillance teams on both Kano and Gordon and studied their backgrounds. What was the nature of their relationship? If both were killers, were they involved in equal measure? Stephen definitely seems like he's got a short fuse, temper, much more violent background than Frank. And so at the beginning, I'm thinking Stephen's the aggressor, maybe the dominant one in their relationship, you know, this friendship that they have. He seems like a stronger personality. If you've seen Frank, he's he's very small in stature, appears very shy, kind of timid, meek. So at the beginning, I'm thinking, is Stephen the mastermind in this? And this guy's just along for the ride. I, I, I really didn't understand kind of how he fit in. Studying the reports... Trapp saw that Gordon was the more seasoned convict. He had been in the system most of his adult life, in and out of lockups all over California. Over and over when he committed a crime, he cast himself as the injured party. In 1992, he'd been convicted of molesting an underage nephew and received a three-year sentence. He complained that he'd been forced into taking a plea and spoke of wanting to kill his sister who had brought the charges. By August 2001, Gordon was married with a young daughter, and his wife got a protective order against him. He disguised his car with a teal-green paint job, bought a taser, and waited outside the Mormon church she attended in Riverside. He lured his daughter into the car, gave her candy, and forced his wife inside. According to one report, the defendant drove away and told her he wanted to spend some time with his daughter and they were going to Disneyland. She told him they were not dressed for Disneyland. Instead, they drove to Arizona. He thrust the taser in front of his wife's face, and she watched the electricity jump from prong to prong. He grabbed her cell phone and threw the battery out the window. At a Super 8 motel, he handcuffed her and told her he would release her if she had sex with him one last time, and she complied. This is how an evaluator summarized his account. Quote, it was consensual because she had sex with me on the condition 
that I would take her home. A jury convicted him of kidnapping but acquitted him of rape. He blamed his ex for ruining his life. He had just wanted to be with his daughter, he said. Gordon had been a cook at Disneyland. He had worked at a meatpacking company. He had delivered newspapers. He had raked leaves at the Anaheim Cemetery. And in recent years, he had been working for Boss Paint and checking in with parole officials for regular evaluations. He resisted the idea of group therapy with sex offenders. He said, I don't want to be with those losers and I don't want to hear their stories about molesting kids. I didn't rape my wife. He said, if someone calls me a rapist, I'm going to punch them. Evaluators found he was often argumentative and he told one, I've always had an attitude problem since I was five years old. One evaluator wrote, Mr. Gordon's criminality suggests a history of deceitfulness, repeated lying, and conning others for personal profit or pleasure. Parole reports detailed a relationship with Kano that was dangerous and marked by repeated law-breaking. In October 2010, the pair cut off their GPS devices and got on a Greyhound bus headed to the Talladega Super Speedway in Alabama. They were arrested two weeks later at a nearby army depot. They got five months in prison and were soon back together on the streets of Anaheim. In April 2012, someone reported that men were stripping a car behind Boss Paint. It turned out to be Gordon working on his car with Kano. Gordon argued with police. They cuffed him and described him as the troublemaker. Quote, Kano just followed Gordon's lead. Days later, when a parole agent tried to take them into custody for associating together, a violation of their parole terms, Gordon announced that he was going to run and taunted the agent. What are you going to do about it? Gordon ran and Kano followed. For a second time, the men cut off their GPS monitors and fled the state. They went to Las Vegas, where police caught up to them at the Circus Circus Casino. This time they were gone about three weeks. The escape earned them a few months in prison and federal probation. They both had cut their ankle monitors and, and, and like I said, gone on the lam twice. But, uh, you know, the parole agents even described that as, you know, almost like it was like Stephen Gordon who was upset and kind of prompted them going on the run. To me, it seemed like Stephen was definitely the one that was in charge. Now they were free again, both homeless denizens of the industrial area around Cosby and La Palma. And they were still frequently in each other's company, in violation of their parole, a fact that had somehow escaped the notice or concern of innumerable agents and vast monitoring capacity of state and federal bureaucracies assigned to watch them. They've gone on the lam. They've, like, fled to a different state twice. So it really becomes like I'm in the middle of a manhunt and I have to put this case together before, A, they kill another victim, or two, before they cut their monitors and run again. You know, you do not want to be the detective that lets two serial killers escape. So it's it's a lot of pressure and a, an immense responsibility that you feel. We find ourselves like this thing just started. It had now been three weeks since Jeray Estep's body was discovered, and teams of undercover cops were following Stephen Gordon and Frank Cano 24 hours a day. 
This was a logistical challenge. Cops were rotating in and out of the industrial area in northeast Anaheim, where they spent a lot of time. Because the area was typically deserted at night, because anyone who stayed there after hours knew which cars belonged and which didn't, it would be easy for regulars to spot the officers. The officers were parked down the block in dark-windowed cars, a dead giveaway if Gordon and Kano suspected they were being watched. At night, a helicopter circled the block and kept watch on the suspect's heat signatures. Trapp called the deputy district attorney assigned to the case, Larry Yellen, and told him what they had found. Yellen had been skeptical that there might be a serial killer at work, but so had she. Now, she told him, we have two of them. I give this news to him, and I think when when I uh, first had told him, hey, I'm looking into the Santa Ana girls, and I remember he kind of chuckled the same way. He's like, oh, what, you think you're working a serial killer case? I'm like, I don't know, but I have to consider it. And uh, I kind of had to sit down with him, and I, I gave him everything that I had up to this point in the case. And he's like, Mm, you're there, but you just need a little more. Pretty quickly, the surveillance teams got a picture of the rhythms of the suspects' daily lives. Gordon spent almost all his time around Boss Paint and Body, where he did odd jobs as a handyman. Sometimes he could be seen wandering around the industrial park with his little black dog, Bear. His life was pretty much a closed loop between work and the Toyota 4Runner where he slept and the probation office. Kano was sleeping nearby in his Toyota van. What sort of lives did they lead that you were watching? Like, what were you seeing? Um, at the beginning, it seemed like they were just living their normal life. I mean, Stephen was at work, and when he got off work, he would go into his forerunner and kind of look like he was watching movies or doing something on his computer. He was charging his monitor. Sometimes Frank would have the dog while Stephen was at work. So he would he would help care for it. And Frank, on the other hand, you know, he'd spend a lot of time at Carl's Jr. He would meet his family in parking lots and it looked like he traded clothes. Like maybe um, he would give them his dirty laundry and then they would bring him clean clothes. Um, his family brought him food. They would both park on Cosby, but they wouldn't sleep in the same car. The surveillance team followed Kano as he traveled to Santa Ana and walked into a building. They learned he was participating in group therapy for sex offenders. We'd go to his parole office, obviously, to check in with his parole agent um, and meet with his family. And that was, that was about it. Didn't do very much. Same thing with Stephen. Frank Kano was 18 years younger and five inches shorter than his friend. And Trapp was still trying to figure out what role he played. I really didn't understand kind of how he fit in. Because if you look at him, he he just, <laughs> he doesn't strike you as what a serial killer would look like. I mean, not that, I mean, what does a serial killer look like? I, maybe just because I'm a, a project of the 80s and 90s, you know, when I think serial killer, I think Richard Ramirez, right? Um, and he's definitely a far cry from that. Around the time police identified Frank Cano and Stephen Gordon as suspects and began watching them, the Orange County Crime Lab called with some news. They had confirmed that two separate men had contributed DNA to semen found in Jure Estep's body. 
Because of their criminal history, the state had the DNA profiles of both Stephen Gordon and Frank Cano in their database. But even in a serial murder case, it took time to get access to the database. That meant it would potentially take weeks for Anaheim cops to get the suspect's profiles. Trapp thought there might be a better, faster way. If they could get fresh samples of the suspect's DNA without them knowing and send it to the Orange County lab as a rush job, maybe they could get fast matches. As a surveillance team was following Frank Cano, they spotted him throwing away a piece of chewing gum. They waited till he was out of sight, bagged it, and whisked it to the local crime lab. In the meantime, surveillance was getting increasingly tricky. Both men seemed aware that they were being followed. Cano had parked his van at his mother's house in nearby Garden Grove and had taken to sleeping in the bushes near Boss Paint. At one point, the surveillance team followed him as he took a bus to the Anaheim Police Department, walked into the lobby, and complained that some strange men in cars were stalking him. He had written down the license plates. They were burned. There's a type of surveillance where you never want to be seen, ever. This particular one was, if we're going to fail, if we're going to fail, go ahead and fail on the side of being too close, and then you take a burn, versus I was a little bit too far, and now where did he go? I'm sorry, there's that guy, where's the other one? I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. And now he has just slipped his way into the fabric of society and who knows where he is. That's absolutely not going to happen. And that was discussed. And I even remember discussing that with the surveillance crews is that this operation is to be surreptitious. But if you cannot be surreptitious, then go ahead and fall on the side of do not let them get away. Gordon was still avoiding his RV, sleeping inside his Toyota 4Runner. Trapp worried that he might sneak into his RV and destroy valuable evidence before they could arrest him. Maybe, like other serial killers, he made it a point to collect mementos from his victims. By now, there were about 75 cops on the case. Anaheim and Santa Ana cops, parole and probation agents the U.S. Marshal Service, the FBI. I really did not sleep for 10 days. It was like sleeping with one eye open because it was, I had a, I think I drove my surveillance team nuts because I was constantly calling, where are they? Where are they? Needing to make sure that they were still within eyes of the surveillance units. If the radio got too quiet, you know, I would call. <laughs> Do you have eyes on them? Yes, we have eyes on them. Yes. Trapp took two radios to bed. One radio told her where Kana was. The other told her where Gordon was. Beyond the surveillance teams, they had the advantage of the suspect's ankle bracelets. The system pinged their locations every minute. But Trapp had a constant fear. If the men cut off their monitors again, they would have a head start. They could cut through the fence bordering the back of the industrial lot where they spent their time. In the solid dark, they might slip past the perimeter. Trapp's husband had gotten used to her being gone. She'd get home after a 16-hour day and reheat the dinner he'd made her and wolf it down. If he was still awake, they might exchange a few words across their wood-topped kitchen island. He'd ask about her day, and she didn't know where to begin. She'd say, I can't let these guys escape. 
The pressure and fatigue were mounting by the day, and so was the risk of continuing the surveillance. Was she making a mistake by letting it continue? She dreaded hearing the words, We lost them. On April 9, 2014, day 26 of the investigation, the lab matched Kano's DNA to one of the male profiles recovered from Jure Estep's body. The same day, detectives got the results of search warrants on the suspect's cell phones. They revealed what Gordon and Kano talked about when they thought no one was listening. Detective Julissa Trapp was at the courthouse waiting to get a wiretap warrant signed by a judge when her partner Bruce Lynn called. I just called her over and said, get over here and check this out. What I read and the timing that I read it, who was sending it to who and what it said, (laughs) I called Jules because I said, come see this because the doubt is gone. He told her to get back to the station fast. The text messages had come in. The serial murder suspects had exchanged hundreds of them over the last few months. They were a mixture of the prosaic and the hideous. Some were about food. Can you please heat up the pizza? Taco Tuesday. We can do it next Tuesday. Some were about sports. Gordon followed the Anaheim Ducks hockey team and the races at Daytona, and kept Kano updated on results. Some were about Gordon's dog, Bear. Have you given the dog his steak bone? He's munching away as we speak. As detectives studied their texts, it quickly became clear the men were lovers. There was a lot of sexting. They talked frequently about picking up prostitutes with suggestions of violence. In February, amid the spate of disappearances, Gordon wrote, I don't want to have to hurt the cat, so let me see if we can get some, then we will decide. She is going to fight, scream, yell, kick, bite. Kano replied, I got the tape ready. Weeks later, apparently in reference to another woman, Gordon wrote, When the cat knows it ain't leaving, it might try something. On the night in March, Jeray Estep was abducted. Their phones exchanged a flurry of texts. I can't hurt this cat. I just can't. You're going to get your hands dirty. Get rid of her. How? Happy hand. Can you do it? I thought the next one you were going to go at it. I can't. Cat is beautiful. A while later, Gordon wrote, Bye-bye, kitty. These texts would later be introduced as evidence in court. They dispelled any doubt in Detective Trapp's mind that the men had worked together to carry out the crimes. She was still hoping for a DNA match linking Stephen Gordon to Jeray Estep's body, which she had now for Frank Cano. Trapp and her team had surveilled them for 10 days, and the text showed they were ready to run. They showed that Gordon and Cano had known they were being watched almost immediately. When they were apart, one man would get nervous police had arrested the other. Cano kept shooting Gordon questions to confirm his identity. What's my favorite NBA team? Clippers. And 
Before coming to OC, what city did I grow up in? L.A. And what street were we sleeping in 2011? Greta. By April 5th, it appeared that Gordon had made the decision to run, but Kano had decided against it. When I leave, you are a fool if you stay. Maybe, but I'm staying. Well, I'm out of here with or without you. I'm going to check the computer for a nice place to go. Are you crying because I said no? The next day, Gordon announced he planned to commit suicide. I've decided to end it all once I find Bear a good home. Is that why you said Te Amo last night? I guess. Be honest, are you really going to do it? Considering it, yes. You don't want to, though. I do and don't, but my future looks bleak. Tell Bear I said goodbye and many licks, and you find him a good home. Te amo, friend, always. Goodbye, or should I say goodbye for eternity. Later that day, Gordon made another plea. Let's get out of Dodge while we can. If they cut the monitor, it was going to be a little bit of a delay before we were notified, and I wasn't willing to take that risk. You're thinking, I'm not going to let the sun set on these guys one more night. By the time that day hit, I knew they were going to run. Just based on everything that we had learned up to that day. Like, I knew that if the sun set, like, they were, they were running that night. The Anaheim Police Department had plotted out a strategy with the help of the FBI. And so I ultimately gave the order to, to pick them up. They would arrest the two suspects simultaneously and bring them back to the homicide department and put them in separate interrogation rooms. Trapp would move between the two rooms, questioning them, playing them off each other. About 6 p.m. on April 11th, the team that was watching Frank Cano converged on him as he was getting on a bus. He was handcuffed and driven to the interrogation room. Detective Trapp wanted to interview him alone. One interrogator, one suspect. That's ideal in her view to create the intimacy necessary for a confession. She opened the door and walked inside. She introduced herself to Frank Cano and made some small talk. She tried to ease him into a conversation. He didn't bite. He wanted a lawyer. The interview ended. Fast. You know, just enough for me to get, I guess, a vibe or a feel from him. And uh, all of a sudden, I didn't think he was this timid, meek individual. He seemed much more cold and calculated to me. Ultimately, he was uh, taken down to the jail. And uh, Stephen was supposed to be right behind him. Trapp stepped into the hall and picked up the radio to find out the status on Gordon's arrest. She learned that it hadn't happened yet, that there was a problem. Despite the best efforts of police to prevent him from finding out, Gordon seemed to have guessed that Kano had been arrested. He was firing questions at Kano's phone, and Bruce Lynn was doing his best to answer them, trying to convince him that Kano was still free. But it wasn't working. And now cops had surrounded Boss Paint and Body, with Gordon holed up inside in the company of a co-worker. Police were calling it a barricade situation, but no one had actually made contact with him yet to demand he surrender. So Trapp and an FBI agent called him. And uh, he basically tells me that he's not going to come out. So I'm like, okay, well, now you're barricaded. And uh, <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm relaying this information to the SWAT team, um, he decides to make his great escape on a bicycle. Around 8 p.m., Gordon grabbed a box cutter and jumped on his bicycle. He pedaled hard through the parking lot and sped out onto La Palma Avenue. 
one of our surveillance units decides to have a little a little meeting with his bicycle and uh, the front end of a surveillance pickup truck and the rear of his bicycle tire meet. And uh, Stephen goes for a little flight and uh, ultimately <laughs> lands on the street and gets taken into custody, um, which requires him to go get medically cleared for several hours uh, to make sure that he didn't break anything and that he's okay. The plan was to bring him to the station the next morning. Maybe Trap would succeed with him where she had failed with Kano. Maybe Stephen Gordon could be induced to talk. Getting him to do so might be their only chance of learning about exactly what had happened to Jure Estep, as well as the fates of three missing women. Getting him to talk might be the only way of understanding exactly how the partnership with Kano had functioned. Trap had been working nearly nonstop for weeks, and the fatigue was showing. One of her partners, Detective J.D. Duran, took a look at her and suggested she get a little rest. She was just disheveled. She had bags in her eyes, and, you know, she just looked tired. And you could just see her eyes bouncing back and forth in her skull, just like, what's next? What's coming up next? What am I doing now? You've been in the same clothes for, you know, 30-plus hours, and it just gets all stretched out loose, and you look, you look like a mess. We've all been up, and plus the added stress that it's her case. Um, Louis says uh, the word stress, but it's, it's obvious. It's, it's part of the program. And so you go home and you get any rest? Not really. I mean, I'm able to, I'm able to take a shower, which I was grateful for. You know, just kind of get cleaned up. She drove home and poured herself a glass of wine hoping it would help her sleep. But her thoughts were racing too hard. Her husband, Eric, slept. He was a SWAT commander at the Anaheim Police Department and had been called out that night to respond to the barricade. He had been on his way when Gordon surrendered. And I did lay down for about four hours. And, you know, as, as best as you can sleep, knowing that you're about to have an interview like you've never had before. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, this is part three of five of Detective Trap. If you're the victim of sexual exploitation or want to help someone who is, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. The number is 1-888-373-7888. Again, that's 1-888-373-7888. Detective Trap was written and reported by me, your host, Christopher Gofford. Associate producer is Greta Weber. Story editor is Liza Veal. Original music by Fernando Arruda. Sound design by Marcelino Villapando. Our editors at the Los Angeles Times are Steve Clow and Shelby Grad. Special thanks to Asil Kibbe, Julia Turner, and Abby Fentress Swanson. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering. 